Well, here we are. It's episode five. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2024. Happy New Year. I tell you, I'm very surprised that we've managed to get anything this this month because I'm absolutely exhausted from all the extra work we've been doing. So I just want to give a shout out to all my my colleagues that have been supporting the junior doctors. So every well done, everybody. Um, so happy new year, 2024, ED GovCast, episode yep. five. So as ever, my name is Gareth Davis. I'm one of the emergency medicine consultants. I'm joined by Lee Barneycott. And Helen Bates. Hey, we're going to start off with a bit about our Datex analysis and some of the themes we've picked up on. We're going to move swiftly on to some clinical cases. So really some fascinating stuff this month. We talk about a, a body stuffer. That's right. That's that it. was one of my cases. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting case about a patient who presented with a STEMI who refused to have a PCI. So that's very interesting. We're going to talk about aortic dissections, which come up quite a lot. We're going to talk a bit about blunt abdominal trauma. So we're going to have a bit of trauma and about CT and serial examinations. And then finally, as ever, we're going to finish with some pediatric content, Helen. Yeah, so we were delighted to be joined by our named nurse for safeguarding who presented the HSIB report to us. And also one of our pediatric colleagues presented a meningitis. Right, let's get on with it then. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Datexes. We love Datexes, don't we, guys? Yes. Oh, I love a Datex. Yeah, they're fascinating, aren't they? But seriously, there's some great nuggets that come out of our Datex reporting process. So we'd encourage all of you to submit incident report forms that we call Datexes. Uh, if you come across situations that need further investigation or you need to share some knowledge from those. And we like to try and pull out the key themes that we can learn uh, about from the Datexes, don't we, each month? The two key themes this month we'd like to talk about are time-critical medications in the emergency department and assaults that unfortunately keep happening to our staff. Absolutely. And I'd say this is becoming increasingly common with the time-critical medications because, as we know, in in a lot of our departments, overcrowding uh, and exit block is a a key feature. So these patients um, will be in our departments and they will need their medications. Yeah, and the onus really uh, is upon us to make sure that the patients get the medications at the right time. And I think Arkem have picked up on this, haven't they, recently with um, with some of their alerts? Yeah, so there was a safety flash sent out, uh, I think about a month or if not two months ago, about specifically about corticosteroid deficiency. So our patients are on long-term steroid therapy, uh, making sure that they get those um, steroids prescribed for them in the emergency department, because not having them prescribed can uh, cause them harm. Uh, But they've also extended out to a quip um, which I know that as a department we're looking to implement. In my experience it seems to be things like Parkinson medications. Mm. Um, I, I meet a lot of patients coming in through Rat Bay for example they've had a fall um, but they're on Parkinson medications they haven't brought them with them so it's up to us as clinicians to have a quick look on our computer systems to figure out what medications they're on mm. uh, and make sure that they get them because some of these Parkinson's medicines for example they'll eat three or four times a day at, at certain at specific mm. times and if they miss a dose then there's a massive re- risk that they're going to stiffen up and their lead to stay is going to increase. Mm. I think it can be easy sometimes to gloss over some of those chronic medications when you know you're seeing a patient that um, is obviously coming into hospital maybe they don't have lots of um, immediate care needs right now but I, I do tend to try and focus on certain medication groups when I scan through the list of medicines um, are there apart from the Parkinson's meds are there other particular medications that you two look for yes well I mean 
I would say epilepsy medication as well, but actually sure. uh, just looking through the QUIP data um, from the Royal College, uh, they've actually used the mnemonic MIST in order to try and remember which drugs we should be oh. looking out for. So um, M stands for movement disorder, which is obviously our Parkinson's drugs, uh, immunosuppressants, sugar, which obviously means insulin, yeah. um, steroids, which we've already mentioned from the safety alert, epilepsy, and also DOAX, which are probably I don't think so much about now that patients aren't on warfarin anymore so yeah. much. Um, it's the DOACs. Um, and I think one of the difficulties uh, we have to recognise in the emergency department at the moment is that our prescribing systems are different between ED and the inpatient teams. But we are looking after inpatient patients in our emergency departments for longer. So we prescribe on paper charts, mm. whereas the medical team or surgical team will prescribe on a computer system, which then doesn't get flagged to our nurses. And that's why it's becoming a real issue for us. Yeah. I really like that mnemonic, actually. That's a really useful one, isn't it? So should we just go through that again? Just so we remember? Absolutely. I love a mnemonic. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> let's see if I can remember. So movement disorders, the yep. Parkinson's meds. M. Immunosuppressants. I. Sugar. For the insulin. For the insulin. Excellent. First S. Steroids. Second S. Excellent. And... He's cheating, everybody. Uh, what was the other one? Epilepsy? Epilepsy, Epilepsy. and then the DOAX slash anticoagulants. Excellent. Missed. I'm going to remember that. That's great. Thank you. I think I need a mnemonic for life, really. How to get up in the morning, get my coffee made, just to remember these things. So So, next thing, unfortunately, uh, violence towards members of the team Mm. um, by patients who come in, they're either uh, drunk or on drugs or they have um, severe mental health problems. It's really sad to hear that. We spoke about that in one of the earlier podcasts, didn't we? Okay, so what what can we do about that? Because we know that there's going to continue to be this risk. Uh, We're seeing more patients with uh, behavioural disturbance, I think, coming through the emergency department. And I think, you know, alcohol and substance misuse remains a problem in every emergency department, doesn't it? So... You know, what can we do as, to, as, uh, as clinicians in the ED? I think some of the simple things that we can do, uh, for example, when patients come in with a, on a 136 uh, with the police, um, there's risk assessment of that patient. I think we use something called the Webley form, um, which, which tells us, you know, their, their risk of violence, their risk of uh, absconding, etc. And make sure that gets done and assessed by the NIC and, and, and probably the EPIC on arrival. Yeah, that sort of information sharing, isn't it, from what do the police know about this patient who may or may not be in custody and sharing that information with the hospital and having a joint discussion early on when they first arrive. I think using our IT systems is important. So we have a way of flagging on patient first, which is the EDIS system that we use um, when patients have previously been violent uh, or other alerts suggesting such as you know, should not be seen on their own with a female doctor or nurse. Those are useful. But I think also from past experience, it's having a zero tolerance policy about this sort of stuff. I remember a long time ago as an ED reg watching a patient hurl some abuse at the nursing staff and we did end up calling the police. And the moment he said one rude word to the police, they had him in handcuffs and in the back of their van. And it was a real stark reminder to me that I think very few people out there tolerate aggression and abuse like we probably do in the NHS because our background comes from caring and trying to look after these people and sometimes to the detriment of ourselves and our staff. Mm. So I would really, really encourage zero tolerance policy of these patients. Mm. I think as seniors in the emergency department, if we if members of our team experience these situations, we need to support them, but we also need to support them in such a way that um, you know the police are 
perhaps in a position to prosecute offenders. And so it's really important, isn't it, to capture um, information, evidence objectively and accurately. So, you know, if you are uh, the victim of this sort of um, uh, of these sorts of events, then you need to document very clearly and very accurately exactly what happened with actual words used and uh, with witness accounts as well. And that, I think, will help any kind of legal case that may come out of it. Okay, so moving swiftly on, we're going to talk about something I don't think I've said out loud before, body stuffing. What's that all about, Helen? Well, so interesting. As an 18-year-old, sadly brought in by the police because they believed that he had concealed a packet of drugs up his rectum. And so this leads us into the world of body stuffing, body packing and uh, other nomenclature that I will explain to you in a minute. So this male was searched at the police cells because they have powers that enable them to do full body searches. And between his buttocks, they felt that they could see some cling film sticking out. And whilst we might all have a little bit of a side joke about this sort of topic, it's actually quite a serious problem for the police. And the statistics would say that between 1997 and 2000 which feels like a long time ago, but essentially over a five-year period that they looked at this, 43 drug-related deaths happened within police custody and 16 of those were directly due to internal drug concealment. And that is what we're talking about. So the case for me was pretty straightforward. There was a question as to whether this young man had concealed drugs up his rectum. He was denying this, but was also not allowing me to examine him. And so there is a great RCHEM guidance published on this called Management of Suspected Internal Drug Trafficker. And it goes through all the different types of drug concealment that people might choose to do. And more importantly, obviously for us, what to do about it. And essentially, most of the guidance centres around either observing these people for eight hours in order to see whether the drug wrappings that they have used have dissolved and therefore the drugs are exposed to the body or to do what's called a low density CT scan, which I discovered after discussing with the radiologist on call is actually similar to a CT KUB. So it's not a high density scan. We just want to see whether we can find an obvious foreign body. I was going to ask what kind of scan that is. Um, I have done that before and I think in my scenario, which was very similar to yours, the, the radiologists ha- weren't aware of this guideline and they didn't know what CT to do. So it's interesting to just to say it out loud, yes, it's just a CTKUB essentially. So it is. That, is that what you want me to request? Then? That is it. And the guidance is quite clear that that is exactly what it is. Um, but I, I did recall when speaking to the radiologist, there was a, definitely a book pulled out and there was definitely some pages being flicked through to try and work out what the best um, imaging was to do. So the CT for this gentleman actually showed that he didn't have anything up his rectum he was actually managing to conceal the drugs between his buttocks Um, and so I was able to safely discharge this young gentleman back to the police but it's worth just talking around the different nomenclature for these things because we were discussing the fact that previously we felt that maybe it had been different and didn't necessarily lend itself to understanding what was going on there's three different uh, types of concealment Uh, the first would be body packers or what might be called drug mules so these are people who intend to swallow the drugs in order to move them, sometimes internationally, and obviously for the drugs to come out in a state which can be sold on the streets once they've passed through the person's 
gastrointestinal system. So these ones tend to be less risky because obviously a lot of thought is put into how they package the drugs in order to make sure that they transit successfully. There's also body stuffers. These tend to be more drug dealers or street users who stuff the drugs in wrapped cling film or any other sort of emergency wrapping that they can get hold of and they then swallow the drugs or intend to conceal them in their mouth and then spit them out in order to conceal them later. And these ones are much more risky because the wrappings that they use are not made to withstand the GI tract and they're the ones that are at risk of the wrappings rupturing and therefore having a massive ingestion of the drug. And then finally, there's the pushers, which is where they conceal drugs or other items in their rectum to avoid detection. And again, the wrapping tends not to be so useful, although I suspect that inserting them into the rectum is a safer thing than swallowing them. So that's the nomenclature explained for you. I hope you all feel educated about where you might conceal drugs in the future. I do. Um, Certainly I've um, come across these cases in the past and I know Talkspace has some advice as well. Um, But I would say from experience that the RCHEM summary is superior and definitely more pragmatic and straightforward for us to use in practice, Lee. Yeah, um, it was great to see that guidance from RCHEM, actually. Uh, I hadn't actually looked at that document fully, but I find it a really useful and pragmatic guideline. So um, thanks very much for sharing that. Okay, so uh, our next case is uh, is one of a patient presenting with an acute um, coronary syndrome, a STEMI, wasn't it? But this was a bit unusual, this case, because whilst the patient had a barn door STEMI on his ECG and all the symptoms that one might expect with it, uh, our colleagues who attended the patient found that he didn't want to go for a PPCI. Yeah, this was fascinating because mm. uh, whenever I see a STEMI walk into ED, I'm quite happy because uh, I know as long as they're obviously not in arrest, this is straightforward. Mm. Get them on, on the defib, give them some, some antiplatelets, etc. Get on the phone to the cardiologist and they're, they're gone to PCI, but not in this case, Lee. No, this is one of those cases where you kind of feel like you've been hit by a bus from the side because you just can't. Uh, move forward with the usual pattern of uh, treatment so um yeah so our colleagues found us themselves in this position didn't they and um so what did they do so i think this was really tricky for them Mm. the um patient could not explain to them why he did not want the primary pci he was quite clear that he didn't want it but couldn't explain why and so that makes it very difficult to assess his capacity Mm. um, for making that decision because we would normally want to know that they had understood the information they had retained that information then could communicate back to you their reasons for why or why not they're making their decision And so I think it created a real clinical conundrum for them. Now, the fortunate thing is, if we all think back to, in my case, my days as a PRHO, uh, there is an alternative to primary PCI, and that is thrombolysis. Yeah. Yeah, we're used to using it in stroke and occasionally when we have a, a big PE. But yeah, I agree. That's not been in my scope of practice uh, in my career, but we all know it exists for STEMI. But this is the sort of thing that paramedics, I think, were giving pre-hospitally, you know, 25 years ago. So it's not a thing that we have in our arsenal anymore. Steady, Gareth. Uh, it yeah. was, wasn't, wasn't quite that long ago. Really? And, uh, and I, we did sometimes um, give it in the hospital, didn't we, Helen? Uh, yes. 
<clears throat> when I was a PRHO and, and working on CCU, we used to have the, the meeting every week where we presented the ECGs from the patients who had been thrombolized in hospital. So it's not that old, but you're right. Now it's much more used by paramedics who don't think that they can get a patient to hospital in time for a primary PCI. That would be the indication for it. But again, the patient's ability to express themselves made even consenting them for thrombolysis difficult because again he had explained that he did not want primary pci he would accept drug treatment but trying to specifically explain to him that obviously thrombolysis is not without its risks in terms of particularly the bleeding risk it was difficult for the team to ascertain that this was a treatment that he would accept yeah i think that the, the, the key point in this was just the clinicians involved were completely taken aback by the fact that this patient didn't want the gold standard treatment for his time critical problem. And from what I can see from the case, the patient wasn't mentally ill, didn't really have any capacity problems, just refused for no apparent reason, which led the clinicians involved navigating the whole world of capacity um, consent um, and alternative treatments mm. and they but they didn't tackle this alone did they I think uh, you alluded to clinicians there were a couple of senior clinicians uh, from our service involved in this but they they also uh, sought to sense check their decision making with some other consultant colleagues didn't they from other specialties yeah indeed and this is something I do and I think my colleagues do and I, I call it clinical consensus mm. if there's something that you think you need to do uh, treatment-wise or diagnosis-wise that you think is a little bit controversial, then you need to involve colleagues. And whether that's your ED colleagues or um, specialty colleagues, yep. get in a conversation. And this quite often happens to me, for example, with critical care cases. You know, we, we get a few people in the room, we all put our heads together and we make a decision. Yeah. And in this case, I think they involved a cardiologist, which obviously to all of us would make sense. But they also involved this on-call psychiatrist. And we were chatting before we started recording the podcast about who the other person might be. But Gareth, you were saying that you've also included the legal team before. Yeah, because you just need to know where you are with regards to the law. You know, we've all learned about mental health law, mental capacity acts, etc. But we're not solicitors, we're not lawyers. Mm. And we all know that any decision we make could be um, criticised in the future. Um, yeah. So I think in these sorts of scenarios, when you're a little bit unclear, you know, you may be lack of sleep because you've just done six on-call shifts because it's a strike, um, get get a lawyer involved. Why not? The, the trust has one on-call. I think that's true of every trust. There will be an, an on-call legal team. And I've certainly tapped into uh, that resource on a Sunday afternoon before. It's actually very easy to get hold of them. Uh, and I know from other work that, although it wouldn't be the case in this case, if they did need to seek further legal advice themselves or even junctions, they can be on the phone to a high court judge within 20 minutes. So um, so actually there's a whole other uh, route of legal support available to us for complex decisions. I think ultimately in this scenario, you know, it comes down to the fact that patients can make unwise decisions mm. um, and that doesn't mean that they don't have capacity. I think in the end, we delivered thrombolysis and I think we had a good outcome in the end. Yeah, so I think the team felt that that was what's called the least restrictive option. Uh, you know, there was an alternative to pri primary PCI, it was thrombolysis and they felt that that was in the best interest of the patient. 
I think the clinical case did suggest that he was getting increasing pain, becoming quite agitated. So actually being able to assess his mental capacity was becoming more difficult. And so they moved into the realms of least restrictive and in best interest. And he had a really good outcome. Brilliant. I'm going to talk about aortic dissections. Now, I don't know. I've seen a few recently. A few have popped into our department to see us. A patient with Marfan who presented with a little bit of mild chest pain and atrial flutter, a brief episode of chest pain. So I, I think dissections are out there. And I, I just wanted to talk to you about some of the features that we might pick up. And I know there's a there's a, there's a campaign, I think, called Think Aorta, Helen. Have you seen that? Uh, truthfully, I hadn't before you brought it up in the governance meeting, which is what I love about the governance meeting. So I hadn't seen it. Uh, but the Royal College of Emergency Medicine and the Royal College of Radiologists have gotten together to produce this poster, just highlighting the symptoms, risk factors and what examination findings you might find when looking for aortic dissection. Yeah, and I think that poster, that campaign um, has some really key symptoms. And, I, and, and certainly in my experience, pain is the number one symptom and it usually is abrupt so it's i'm walking along and suddenly i've got a i guess for example a thunderclap pain in my chest or tummy or back Um, and there may be some radiation to the back chest or abdomen crucially as well other symptoms for example strokey type symptoms you know you're getting some neurology in the upper in limbs or lower limbs you're getting some sort of stroke symptoms like speech disturbance etc accompanied by chest pain it's always going to raise the alarm syncope yeah syncope yeah i was uh, i was just sharing wasn't i that i saw a patient very similar to that uh, a couple of days ago myself um, where there was a severe chest pain and there'd been some neurology associated so we always think about dissection it wasn't in that case but uh, certainly if i'm seeing that patient in the emergency department i'd be thinking about doing a cta autogram um i think that think aorta campaign that you speak about um i think it's an international uh, yeah. thing actually and so you know it's a problem worldwide and it's well recognized that it's really easy to miss these cases so you have to have a high index of suspicion there's some risk factors aren't there helen that they talk about yeah, so the risk factors, I think the one that we probably all know about is hypertension. If you've had a previous aortic aneurysm, clearly you're at more risk of having a dissection. I don't think I realised specifically a bicuspid aortic valve was a risk factor, but that will now be logged in my brain somewhere so that next time I see a patient, I can ask about that. And then there's clearly other things like familial aortic disease or like you saw as case with Marfan's. Yeah, so I mean, I I actually saw this guy directly. Um, he'd just come in, and he was your classic Marfan's patient. He was around sixty five, sixty nine, something like that. Um, but he didn't. He wasn't really committing to having chest pain. But clinically, he had atrial flutter about one hundred and fifty. And when I did probe him, he did say, "Oh well, yeah, I've got a bit of mild chest pain." Um, so that prompted me to go straight for a CTA, which did did reveal a type A dissection. In fact, it was a complete dissection, so it was from the aortic root right down to the iliacs. Well done, Gareth. Well, I like a little slam dunk diagnosis. Have you got a scoring system that might help? So I think in clinical practice, we, I mean, I've heard in the past things like your ancillary tests, you know, your D-dimers, your chest x-rays, your ECGs, there, there. Um, but ultimately, the, the test is going to be a CTA aorta. Yeah. Okay. But I think we've all got our sort of threshold for just getting it done immediately. You know, you've got your sort of patients who say, oh, he's got a dissection. 
you know, you've got that gut feeling straight away. And then you've got those ones that you kind of umming and ah about. So there is there is um, a score that you can use, which is available on MD Calc, um, which is called the ADDRS score. So that is just talks briefly about um, any, any high risk uh, condition, for example, your Marfan's, your aortic disease, any high risk features. Um, so as we've mentioned, chest, back or abdominal pain described as abrupt. And then some of the, some of the risk exam features. Um, and these sometimes uh, very subtle and we might not pick up in, an, in a busy and emergency department. For example, a new aortic insufficiency murmur or a BP differential between arms. So yeah, uh, it's, it's useful to look at because I think it kind of prompts you to think from the history and exam, is there anything in there? And also you can write the important negatives in your notes then. So when, if you are sort of judged later on down the line, why didn't you think dissection? You'll say, well, this is why we didn't think dissection. Yeah, I think you have to think about the way that that information flows to you as a clinician when you're seeing patients. You know, you get your history first, you're going to find out about the history of the presenting complaint. And I'm I'm listening in here for chest pain, type of type of pain, speed of onset of pain, how long it's lasting for. But then there are risk, pre-morbid risk factors, aren't there? That's your Marfan's, your hypertension, the bicuspid um, valve, for instance. And then if you're, you know, you're raising up your suspicion, then there are some more specific exam findings which are included there. But I think oftentimes we will have already interjected with a CTA autogram at this stage. And I think the thing that we probably all say to our juniors, and I think it's really been pushed in the last few years, is that you've got to be really wary of any investigations that are not a CTA autogram. They can be falsely reassuring. So just be careful of that. If your suspicion is high um, that someone may have a, a, an acute aortic syndrome, then you need to get that CTA autogram uh, rather than faffing around with other investigations. Yeah, I agree. And I think classically that was your D-dimer. There, there have been some studies uh, recently. For example, there's the advised study, which was a multi-center trial, and they did externally validate the scoring system I just mentioned. And, and they do say if you have a low risk score, then you could use a D-dimer in the, in the same way you would use it, for example, with P in a low well score. So I think the case is still out for that. But I totally agree with your sentiment. If you think someone has a dissection, then get a CTE autogram. Right. So our final case for the adults this uh, month was an 18 year old who came into the department after a high speed uh, road traffic collision, came in and I think had a, a trauma CT scan done. Uh, but the nuts and bolts of the matter is that um, the patient was discharged home and then came back a day later and was found to have uh, had some ongoing abdominal pain, had a repeat abdominal CT and was found to have a perforated bowel. Yeah, I, I this, this could also be a sort of product of our successfully because mm. sometimes some of these patients get a ct too early and, mm. and we don't pick up some of the subtle findings yeah so we had quite a long chat about this case didn't we in a meeting today um it was really i think the nuts and bolts of the discussion were what do you do with a patient that has a, a normal investigation um following potentially significant mechanism of injury and i think we probably all recognize you have to be slightly careful in this patient group don't you yeah, I think um, one of the things that we pointed out from the case was that this lady had ongoing abdominal pain within the emergency department. So although she had a CT scan, which was reported at the time by the radiologist as being normal, um, she continued to have pain and in fact was noted 
by the investigator of the incident that actually she had oromorph for her abdominal pain just before she was then discharged. And I think clearly with the, the retrospectoscope, it's very easy to say, why on earth are we giving somebody oromorph for pain before sending them home? But at the time, it may have felt clinically reasonable. I think we also talked a lot about serial examinations and actually how laying the hand on the tummy and repeatedly doing that is really helpful. And certainly from trauma from a paediatric point of view, where we're much less willing to put children through the CT scanner for investigations, repeated examination is really, really useful. And I think that's something that we discussed today that might have been helpful in this lady's case. Yeah, I agree. And and I think it's just, this is another really good point of learning that the CT scan is just one part of the puzzle, isn't it? And I think you can put that in in any scenario you find yourself in emergency care. If someone doesn't feel quite right, it thinks, you know, if the patient still has quite a significant amount of pain, you know, you've got to go and say, hey, we're not going to kick this patient out. We're going to keep them in overnight. You know, it would be better to do it under a specialty, but even just keep them in the department if, 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 if they aren't on board. You know, it's not letting the patient go and just putting your hands on their belly sort of serially as, as you describe. Well, I suppose to close up the case, I mean, thankfully, the uh, the patient came back. The problem was found. It was repaired and uh, the patient didn't suffer any adverse outcome, did they? So, But I think, yeah, the takeaways really are um, treat the patient, not the investigation. And uh, you probably should include an observation period after these sorts of cases. Yeah, and I, I again, I was... As, as we mentioned, I worry about giving people loads of opiates and just kicking them out because the pain's gone. Well, clearly the pain's gone because you're just giving them morphine. Um, so there needs to be time, doesn't there? So can I just say that I've missed doing some Christmas jokes? Oh. I quite enjoyed that part of the podcast last week. That was the favourite part of my our podcast. And I, I, I went away from that thinking we could just have a separate podcast for Christmas jokes. We could do. And my daughter came up to me yesterday. She tries to tell me lots of jokes that she just makes up on the spot. But she'd heard this joke and she tried to tell it back to me. And I fortunately recognised what she was trying to say to me was, why does six hate seven? I don't know. Because seven, eight, nine. Oh dear. I think I did hear that once. That's a (laughs) classic, isn't it? It's a fantastic one. I only say that in order to introduce the paediatric section of this this meeting. And uh, we've really only got one case that we want to discuss and, and highlight some learning from for the podcast. So I will present that to you now. One of our paediatric colleagues uh, came to speak to us about a four-month-old baby who, who had originally presented to the emergency department. I believe at the time there was a vague history, which often is the case with these difficult cases, where there was a history of fever, although I don't believe they had a fever when they presented to the emergency department. There was a report of some mottling, but there wasn't the mottling that we would maybe net recognise with sepsis. And there was also some history around the breathing and the fact that there'd maybe be some maybe been some pauses in the breathing, although it wasn't described directly as what we would all recognise as apnea. The child, importantly, for this case, didn't trigger our sepsis tool and was seen by one of our SHOs, discussed with one of our registrars, and then they decided that they probably had a viral infection and so was discharged with safety netting advice. I believe the child returned about eight or nine hours later when they looked a little bit more unwell. The parents were a bit more concerned. And so we referred the child directly to paediatrics. Once they were under the paediatric team, it was found that actually they had a a swollen fontanelle, so a raised fontanelle, and were looking pretty unwell. And this time it was considered whether sepsis was a problem. And actually went on to have 
an LP, which showed that this child had bacterial meningitis. So the case was brought to us just to try and unpick some learning points from from the from the case. Um, and I think there's a couple of things there that we need to think about, which was the history of the apneas, the mottling, and also about the senior review in the emergency department and whether that was adequate or not. Yeah, I, I agree, Helen. And it was fascinating to, to hear the case being unpicked. And yes, the our paediatric consultant colleague did kind of come up with some of her, her advice on what, what, how to examine children, for example. I, I quite like the head-to-toe approach, looking for sources of infection, you know, looking for your fontanelle, looking in your throat, ENT, looking for evidence of mastoiditis, for example, you know, looking at the neck for any lumps and bumps there, chest, belly, etc., yeah, added on to what, what she described as our normal A to E assessment. Now, I don't know that we all do an A to E assessment when we examine children and adults who present who aren't acutely unwell. But I certainly feel, and in fact, Sarah Noble, one of our colleagues, raised this point about sort of having your washing line and having extra bits that you hang on to your examinations. Um, what we all have to remember is that that these babies cannot give us any history. And so you've got to go looking for the problem. And fontanelle is a really useful sign um, in babies and it being raised or bulging or any changes to it can be really helpful. And as a result of the datex that was put in about this case, we did share some learning and I signposted people to spotting the sick child, but also some other useful resources around examination of the fontanelle and how that can be helpful. Yeah, I totally agree. And I certainly, I, 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 always tell myself to, to put my hand on on the baby's forehead it's useful also in trauma for example head injuries you know you could, if you're getting raised intracranial pressure in those babies then you're going to feel it in the fontanelle mm. yeah I, I couldn't agree more um it's really important to get these young children undressed isn't it to make sure that you examine uh, them entirely and um uh, and our paediatric colleague highlighted the value of the head-to-toe approach, didn't she? Yeah, I think it's really important to remember. We're not used to seeing babies. We're much more used through our medical education um, at examining adults. And so these things, you know, our juniors only learn through experience. And if we are asking them, what did the fontanelle look like? Did you strip the baby? Have you checked for bruising? Have you checked for lymph nodes? Did you look in their ears? Then this prompts them into remembering that that is part of the examination. I think it also brought out another point which we discussed with our CD Gen, which is that all children under one year should probably be discussed with the EPIC, so during the day, the consultant at night, our registrars, um, and that they should actually have a review in the department before we consider sending them home. In most cases, this will be a straightforward review. But in this case, if somebody had had a look, looked at the mottling, maybe heard this history of the pausing and the breathing and laid a hand on the fontanelle, it might have changed the the story for this child yeah and i believe that it's part of the the royal college of emergency medicine's advice on clinical uh, consultant sign off isn't it i think yeah. i think is it under six months fever under i thought it was under a year i think it's under a year with fever okay well that comes to an end episode five well done everybody episode five recorded this time in lee's kitchen because what? we weren't organized enough to arrange a meeting room and we had to hot foot it from the hospital i must say though it's very nice here you've got some really cool art on the walls your children look lovely we've and, had a dog and, running around our feet which yeah. i always find very soothing and i was given hot coffee on arrival so i'm yeah. happy a shame you spilt half of it but i hope you like the hope you like the coffee and the dog was pleased to see you as well so as ever thank you very much for everybody for listening um if you have any feedback if you want us to discuss any content then please let me know through the usual channels and we'll see you next month. Take care. Goodbye. Goodbye.